Um, welcome, everyone. Welcome to the LSE. Um, uh, I, whatever time zone you're in, um, you are very welcome, uh, whether it's morning, um, afternoon uh, or evening. Um, we can't welcome you to the LSE without making reference to the fact that we're welcoming you to a digital rather than an atomic um, uh, London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, and that has only one um, main uh, virtue, which is it allows people from much further afield to join us in our conversations. Um, so you're very welcome to this LSE um, Marshall Institute public lecture. Um, in a minute, you'll hear from uh, Constant Locke and Christian Bush. Um, start to think about the wonderful questions you're going to ask uh, Christian uh, and think about um, posing those through the Q&A function or through uh, Facebook. Um, for those of you um, who don't know already, uh, the Marshall Institute is a small institute at the heart of the uh, LSE, committed to understanding more about private action for public benefit. Um, and uh, also the place uh, to have just launched a new executive um, uh, MSC um, in uh, social business and entrepreneurship, which we describe as the antidote to the MBA. So as you listen to Christian, you'll start to hear a little bit about why that, uh, that, that, that might be. Um, Christian's book, um, uh, which I spent the day reading, today is publication day, by the way, um, and many, many, many decades ago, I was a publisher, so I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to recommend that over my left shoulder you see Christian's book uh, and that you immediately go uh, to your preferred online retailer uh, and order a copy. Um, but his book ends, uh, and I've just finished it today, uh, with a sentence that, that, that reminds me of the Marshall Institute's purpose, the purpose of scholarship being uh, engaged commitment to improving the state of the world. And that, and that sentence is, once we start questioning structures, we open up a whole new world for ourselves and others. Uh, and that's a sentiment with which I heartily uh, agree. Um, it's my great pleasure now to introduce my friend and colleague, uh, and indeed uh, part of the MBA Antidote faculty, Professor Conson Locke, who's going to introduce Christian and moderate the session. Welcome to LSE. Welcome, Christian. Welcome, Conson. Thank you, Stefan. So, hi, everyone. Um, I am really pleased to be introducing Christian. I've, no, I've known Christian since I joined LSE in 2008. Yes, a long time ago. So, I joined as a new assistant professor at the time, and Christian was a master's student. And the year after that, in 2009, he became a PhD student. And I have been impressed with him since then because he has somehow managed to create serendipity in his own life from the moment I knew him. Like back then as a PhD student, he um, managed to start something called the co-creation lab with his supervisor, Professor Harry Barkema. And I was like, whoa, what's this? It was really interesting. It was all about um, nurturing entrepreneurship and social impact. Like his, his interests are all about entrepreneurship, social impact and innovation. 
Um, he managed to um, teach at the LSE for a few years after finishing the PhD, and we taught together on a summer school negotiations course. He also helped me out with some of the executive courses I was teaching. And then he managed to land a job at New York University last year, which I was really impressed with. But because we didn't want to let him go, he still got a visiting professorship at the LSE at the Marshall Institute. I mean, seriously, like what, what, is the, what is the best outcome you could possibly think of for a PhD student? And this is it. So um, he has managed to create serendipity in his own life. So I think he is highly qualified to write this book. Um, I actually asked him because I was looking at his book and obviously I read the book in preparation for this, but I was noticing on the back um, that he's got all these endorsements from really famous people. And I, I've just finished writing a book myself and I know how hard it is to get these endorsements. And he's got Dan Pink, Ariana Huffington, Reed Hoffman. And I'm like, how did you do this? And he said, well, I went to a lot of conferences. I met a lot of people. I sent a lot of warm and cold emails. You know, it was a numbers game. And I was like, whoa, you really do practice what you preach. So um, I think when, you know, sometimes when you hear authors talking, you're like, well, do they really know what they're talking about? I think in this case, Christian does know what he's talking about because he not only researches what he's written about, but he lives it in his own life. So I am very pleased to introduce to you Christian Bush. Thank you so much for this wonderful introduction, Constan. Um, and likewise, it's been such a delight and pleasure to work with you and uh, uh, especially also in the context of the Marshall Institute, um, which has been such a fertile ground for a lot of this work. And so thank you so much also, Stefan, for um, in a way always encouraging us to do that kind of work that questions a lot of structures and, and questions how things work and that allows us to really push some, some boundaries, hopefully. So um, I'm delighted to be here today. Um, good afternoon, good evening, uh, good morning, everyone, uh, wherever you are in the world. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I'd love to take you on a journey, uh, a journey of serendipity and, and it's really something as Constant mentioned this has been on my mind for a very long time both as a kind of life philosophy and as a kind of daily practice of, of how to live a life that is somehow meaningful and, and purpose-driven. So being the German I am of course I have a very structured table of content um, so what I'd love to do is I'd briefly talk a little bit about context um, where does this all come from um, what what are the kind of you know, what was the, the playing field that, that we've been thinking about then? What is the art and science of serendipity? What can we learn from both research and practice? And then really a couple of practices that we can all take into our day to day. And then I think we'll dive deeper with content into some of the questions that, that you might all have. And I'm really looking forward to that interaction. Um, also in the spirit of serendipity, I'd be extremely excited for you to reach out, being that via Twitter, LinkedIn, or other ways to really see if there could be potential overlaps with your work as well. In terms of context, uh, I had a experience early on in life when I was 18, uh, a car crash that made me realize how quickly life can be over. Uh, it was that kind of situation where I would smash into a couple of parked cars um, and the policeman who came to the scene, uh, I, I will not forget that sentence where he said, uh, oh wow, he's still alive. So this idea that I was supposed to be dead. And so that kind of sentence um, uh, you know, got me into this whole question of if it would have been over, would it all have been worth it? Did I live a life that was somehow meaningful? At that point, I had to answer all these questions with a very clear no. Um, it, it wasn't that, that meaningful until then. And so I think it took me on this intense search for meaning. 
I started reading a lot of Viktor Frankl, um, who has this wonderful book. You know how some people have the Bible next to their bed or something else. I have my Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. And um, he wrote a lot about how do we find meaning in crisis? How do we find meaning in the toughest of situations? And so I've been very inspired by this. And it took me on this, this journey of really trying to figure out what is it that I could contribute to this world that is somehow meaningful in some way or the other. And as, my, as, as Compton mentioned, I started out more as a kind of entrepreneur, community builder. Um, we set up a community called Sandbox, which was all about bringing together young people, helping them make ideas happen. Um, and what happened all the time at these dinners was people would always go like, oh my God, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence. And so it seemed like serendipity was accelerated in some form or the other. And so I got really excited about this in my own life. I saw it with myself that somehow luck seemed to happen, happen more often if I did certain things. Um, and then, you know, at some point I kind of um, felt, okay, um, we're building all these different things, but do we actually understand what we're trying to do here in terms of the actual impact we're having? And so I went more into academia um, on that route uh, that Constant described, uh, trying to understand how do we really develop meaningful, purpose-driven lives and businesses. And to my absolute delight, when looking at the most successful, purpose-driven, inspiring people that I researched, they all had something in common they somehow intuitively cultivated serendipity. They somehow saw something the unexpected all the time and somehow always did something with it and turned it into positive outcomes. And so what I want to talk today about is, is really kind of what the gist of the book is, which is to say there are people who intuitively practice something that we can all learn from and that we can all somehow build, which is this kind of serendipity mindset that's all about turning the unexpected, turning uncertainty into positive outcomes. Now, in terms of the book itself, um, it's been quite a ride. Um, it's been, it's, it's based on kind of over a decade of, of, of own experiences and, and research, um, has a lot of stories from around the world. So from um, a lot of my work has been in Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's an extremely resource constrained environment, um, particularly in Kenya and, and, and also parts of South Africa, um, to the CEO of, of, of companies here in the US or the UK, to the, the teacher in, in London. So really kind of a diversity of, of stories and really trying to understand what are the patterns behind these stories. So what can we understand behind what is a science-based framework that allows us to understand what these people have been doing differently and what we can learn from this. And so what has helped with this a lot is that the beautiful thing that I realized during the last couple of years diving deeper into this is that essentially all sciences say the same about serendipity. Like you can look into molecular sciences where they accelerate molecules that have unknown reactions. And by accelerating them more and more, you will have more kind of positive outcomes. You by definition don't know what it will be, but it will happen. You know, in physics, there's this idea of entropy. You have to get things in motion so that things actually happen. Um, you have in management a lot around uh, the question of, of serendipity and so on. So the beauty is that in a way, all the different sciences and social sciences are telling us or pointing us to a similar direction. And so the, the goal with this was really to say, how do we bring all of this together, ground it in a science-based framework, and then make it come alive through different stories and examples, and most importantly, exercises that help us build this muzzle for serendipity so that we can have it in our day-to-day -day life as well. Now, to make sure that we're all on the same page, I thought I'd start with a couple of examples. Um, and you know, if you think maybe in your own life, the role of serendipity that you played, um, you know, maybe how you met your co-founder or your love partner, or, you know, um, how you maybe change jobs, whatever it is, I'm sure there's kind of these moments that were completely unexpected, but somehow it shaped your life. And um, you know how all of us, when we, we always obviously tell our CV as if, if, as if we went from A to B to C, but obviously we probably all also had moments of, 
you know, oh, that was an unexpected running into. And I think the moments I've had with Stefan and, and uh, Constant around unexpected things where then a project comes out of it um, is, is a whole story in itself, but it's obviously what really shapes our life a lot of times. And as someone who comes from Germany, you know, where we're used to planning and, and trying to structure everything, um, it's been really interesting to see that once we're building this muzzle, uh, this muscle, um, we essentially get uncertainty and ambiguity away from uh, something that is anxiety enhancing to something that actually can become an ally. And so that's really what, what I want to talk about. Um, but so, you know, imagine this kind of quintessential example. If you have uh, erratic hand movements, as I do, uh, you might spill coffee quite often. And so imagine the situation pre-COVID and hopefully soon again also here in, in New York, we still have most coffee shops um, being, being quite guarded. But um, imagine the situation, you're in a coffee shop and you, you spill the coffee and there's this person next to you and you sense there might be this kind of connection. You sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is, but you know, now you have a couple of options. Like you unexpectedly spill the coffee, but you know, do you just say, oh, I'm so sorry, here's a napkin. And then you walk outside and you wonder, ah, what could have been if I would have talked with this person? Or do you essentially start a conversation, um, you know, and, 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 and kind of somehow see what, what could be there? Um, that's obviously the part, like the, the gist of a lot of love stories where people essentially have these unexpected encounters in a bookstore or in a coffee shop or something where someone has to do something with that unexpected. At the moment in, in COVID times, of course, um, a lot of times we see that uh, companies in particular have a lot of unexpected moments happen. Here you see um, a brewery in Cambodia, but you see that around the world um, that realized unexpectedly in some of the meetings, well, you know, um, we can't really sell our alcohol to um, restaurants at the moment, but maybe what we can do is we can use the alcohol for hand sanitizer. And so that unexpected kind of collective moment of COVID essentially turned them into a completely different type of business. Uh, but essentially they, they, they saw something in the unexpected and realized they can really develop a, a hand sanitizer business around that. This one here is one of my favorites. Um, you might all remember, those of you, especially who are in Europe, uh, a couple of years ago, there was this volcano with a completely unpronounceable name. Uh, a friend of mine in Iceland at some point said, Christian, you're stupid trying to pronounce this name. Like, just say E and then 14. So 14 letters, whatever the letters are, it's just the letters. And so this, this volcano broke out. Um, and, uh, you know, you might remember the ash cloud that was over London and, 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 and the whole of Europe. And in London, all planes were grounded. So essentially, nobody got out of the country via plane. Some people took the ship, which was very entrepreneurial, I guess, but um, essentially most people were grounded. Um, and at that point, there was the biggest uh, social entrepreneurship forum um, in the world, the Skull World Forum happening in Oxford. And all these people were stuck in London. And so I got a call on a Saturday morning, you know, I was, I was very sleepy and, and just got out of bed. And uh, it was an unknown number. And I was curious, okay, let's see what that is. And there was someone on the other, on the, on the other end of the line who was like, hey, Christian, uh, we don't know each other yet. But, you know, a mutual friend uh, gave me your number and uh, my name is Nathaniel and, uh, you know, I'm stuck in London with all the other participants of the Skull World Forum and they all essentially just hanging around like they had their schedules cleared. They're just they don't know what to do. There was pre Netflix, you know, they were just essentially uh, out and about. And so he was like, why don't I bring all these people together at a conference? So within 30 hours, he organized TEDx Volcano, which was a full fledged TEDx conference with amazing speakers like Jess Skull speaking over 10,000 people on the recorded live stream, one of the most successful TEDx type conferences um, um, ever. And he did that with essentially almost no resources, but he did that in a way because he saw something in the unexpected, he saw that unexpected event. And then he went to Ted and says, hey, you're all about like 
inspiring stories around opportunity. So maybe we can turn this into a story of opportunity. And then he got all these local co-working spaces and others to jump in because they liked that momentum and, and so on. But again, he, he, like everyone else, encountered a big kind of unexpected thing, but he did something with it. He connected the dots and then it gave him like an amazing visibility and so on right after. Now, here's one of my favorite examples. Usually I would ask you now, who of you um, has heard of it? Um, and usually it's a good sign if, if I guess, if, if, you, if you haven't, um, because this is essentially where a couple of decades ago, a couple of researchers were testing a medication against uh, or for angina with uh, some of their uh, participants, uh, study participants, and they realized that there was some kind of movement happening in uh, male participants' trousers. And uh, you know, what would we usually do? We would say, wow, this is embarrassing. Like this movement like shouldn't happen and if you give something like, like, like a, a medication. Um, so what we would usually do probably is to either ignore the embarrassing problem or to essentially say, oh, uh, let's find a better way to cure angina that doesn't have that quote unquote side effect. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? This is unexpected, but a lot of people in the world might have a problem in that department. So why don't we essentially make that a medication itself and call it Viagra or, um, or, or else? And so this is how Viagra and other medications along those lines emerged. Again, completely serendipitous. And that's also one of these things where um, around 50% of inventions and innovations tend to be serendipitous. We're looking for something completely different, um, but then, you know, by accident, come across something like this and, and, and see that. And then last but not least, this is, this is one of my favorites um, out of China. Um, it's a company I've been working with quite a bit and they got calls a couple of years ago from farmers. And so that company is selling washing machines and refrigerators. And uh, they got calls from farmers who said, well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in your washing machine, but it always breaks down. And so, you know, what would we usually say? We would say, well, this is a washing machine. Like, don't wash your potatoes in our washing machine. Like, wash your clothes and, and that's it, right? Um, what did they do? They did the opposite. They said, you know what? It's unexpected that they're washing their potatoes in the washing machine. But you know what? There's a lot of farmers in China who might have a similar problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? So that's how the potato washing machine serendipitously emerged. The point with all these examples is what they all have in common is that it's not just about an event that happens to us, right? It's not about just something like blind luck where we inherit something or we are born into a good family or something like that. But it's essentially, there's always some kind of trigger, right? Like the coffee being spilled, the volcano breaking out, and the ash cloud being there, um, the, the farmers calling about potatoes and stuff like that. Um, but then we have to do something with it. We have to connect the dots. We have to see something in that moment and connect it to something relevant. And then we have to have the tenacity to actually do something with it and follow through with it. And so the beauty of this is then that what happens then is that serendipity comes, becomes a process that we can influence. Because at every of these steps, we can influence the trigger. We can create more meaningful accidents. And I talk about this later on, that we can essentially cultivate more of these kind of potential dots that are out there. We can seed them but also we can connect them. We can learn how to connect them better and, and really do something with it. And of course we can work on our grit and, and other things that help us to really turn that into something. And then essentially what we're doing is we're creating smart luck. We're, we're setting ourselves up for smart luck by turning uh, the unexpected into positive outcomes. Now, one of the things that happens of course all the time is that we're missing serendipity all the time. Essentially, either because we don't see the trigger, um, you know, if, if we don't, see something like in the case of Viagra as an opportunity, uh, if we just see it as an embarrassing side effect, uh, then essentially we will not even realize that there is something we might miss connecting the dots, so not, not doing something with it. 
or what happens a lot of times of course is that we might see something we might know what we could do with it but then we might not have the tenacity to actually go through with it now the question is and 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 i wanted to briefly just drive this point home in terms of how much it is also about how we look at the world there's a lot of experiments around luck and some of the most interesting experiments around luck are really around the question of how do we look at the world in 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 a way that um, allows us to have more more luck in our lives and there's a fascinating study that has been done uh, in in the uk where they uh, picked one person who self-identifies as very lucky and one person who self-identifies as very unlucky and they told them you know what walk down the street go into the coffee shop order a coffee and sit down that's it and then we'll have the interview nothing else what they didn't tell them is that there's hidden cameras across the street there's only one table or one seat in the coffee shop that's empty next to this extremely successful businessman who can make dreams happen. And there's a five pound note in front of the door that's just being placed. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, has a nice conversation with the barista, sits next to the businessman, has a conversation, they make friends, exchange business cards, and potentially an opportunity coming out of it, we don't know that. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, the other person's left, ignores the businessman, that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day? And so the lucky person says, it was amazing. I found money in the streets, I made new friends, and potentially an opportunity coming out of it, but we don't know that. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And we probably all know these situations in our own lives where we see some people that are just a bit luckier than others, even though they have exactly the same situations. I mean, look at some of the some couples, they might meet exactly the same people, they might be in exactly the same situations, but by the way they look at the world, how they frame questions and a couple of other things that we'll talk about in a second, they essentially reframe the world in ways that allows them to have more luck and have these kind of things happen. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that serendipity happens or if it happens or if it doesn't happen? Um, a lot of my work has been qualitative, so essentially we're trying to understand over time how does this process unfold, and then we compare different ones with each other. And one of the most interesting ones, of course, is if you have the same situation happen that is unexpected, and you see one creating serendipity, creating some positive outcome out of it, and the other one not. And that is actually um, something that has been discussed quite a bit in, in the literature as well. So for example, there's one, um, uh, there were a couple of researchers a couple of decades ago that were researching the effect of papain, the enzyme. They were injecting rabbits uh, with, that, with that enzyme and they saw that the rabbit's ears flopped. And you know, that was unexpected. They didn't understand why the rabbit's ears flopped. Um, and you know, they both saw it, but only one of them actually acted on it. And you know, he kind of dove deeper into it and that led into a whole stream that led into um, kind of arthritis research because the bloodstream was so accelerated that it would help arthritis um, to, to, to essentially be tackled. And the point here being that essentially we can look at the counterfactual, what could have happened or what would have happened, but also we can look at alternative life histories and what, what are the things that actually unfolded and that, that came about. Um, another way, um, the, the simple way is the coffee shop example I mentioned earlier, where essentially you're just thinking about what could have happened, the, the real counterfactual, um, if you had acted differently. One of the things though that I found super fascinating over the last kind of, um, like years now of writing the book is that once we see that serendipity is there, it happens all the time and so on, it also like makes us question what is actually a positive outcome? Like is a positive outcome about um, turning something 
you know, is it about success, whatever it is. And I remember um, going to my publisher uh, when I had the first version of the manuscript and I was like, hey, here's the manuscript. And they were like, look, we really like this, but uh, we need more love stories. And I was like, well, I'm not sure if I, you know, as a then single 35 year old, if I am the right person to talk about love, like, you know, what do I know about love? And they were like, no, but let's see if we can find something. And so essentially um, we, um, you know, discussed, okay, let's do that. Right after that, I had a meeting with my, uh, with an ex-girlfriend of mine, who's a very close friend of mine now. And we met for coffee and I asked her, do you know of any cool love stories that I could use for the book? And she's like, well, our story. And I was like, what do you mean our story? Like, we're not together anymore. Where, where's the success here? Where's the positive outcome? And she was like, well, look, we met coincidentally in Starbucks. We kind of, you know, went on a joint journey. We gave each other emotional support. We, uh, in a way, introduced each other to interesting people that then put us on different trajectories where we are today now. So even if we're not together anymore, we essentially were such an important part in our lives that, that, that shaped who we are today. And so it made me really rethink a lot of the things in terms of, you know, what do we think about as success? And also how over time, a lot of times, what might seem as bad luck at the moment might actually unfold as something positive in the long run. And that is really something with serendipity that a lot of times it has this incubation time. It a lot of times might start out with a bit of like unexpected crises or something, but then turn into something positive. Now, um, what's of course important is to think about that uh, we, we don't all start at the same base level, right? So I hear in the West Village in New York, um, I have access to interesting networks, I have interesting kind of access to education and so on. Versus like when I go to Kibera, one of the biggest impoverished areas in the world, um, there is a constant noise level. People can't really focus on things. Um, there's, there's, there's not those kind of networks. So the potential serendipity base level is very different for, for me than for, 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 for someone in that context. So going hand in hand with the serendipity mindset is of course removing structural constraints and really trying to understand how we can do both at the same time. How can we set up scholarships, for example, that uh, develop a serendipity uh, base level or serendipity space for people and and so on and those of you interested i'd be delighted to dive deeper but i'd love to wrap this up and then we'll dive into into a q a session with just a couple of um short ideas on on some of the practices because especially at times like at the moment i feel um hubert julie the the former chairman of, of best buy said it beautifully that the way we deal with the unexpected defines who we are right we see at the moment in unexpected times we see the true colors of leaders, we see who acts how, we see who really brings out what in, in each other. And really developing this muscle for uh, the unexpected becomes absolutely crucial in, in that time. Now, how, how do we do that? Um, you know, one of my absolute favorites is, is asking questions differently because we can integrate that into every um, aspect of our life. Um, you know, um, there's a, a, you know, again, instead of asking the kind of what do you do question, how can we ask questions more around, hey, what inspired you in this presentation or um, what is on your mind at the moment or just something that opens up the kind of spectrum of potential dots that could be connected. But more importantly, um, there's the, the question of how do we answer to that question, right? If someone asks us this dreaded what do you do question, um, do we just say, oh, I'm in technology or do we say something like, well, you know, I'm an education entrepreneur. Um, I just started playing the piano, but what I'm really excited about is um, um, reading into the philosophy of science. And so what we're doing here is we're seeding different hooks where someone could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence, I just started hosting Piano Martinez, you should come by. Or, oh my God, such a coincidence, I just started reading into philosophy of XYZ, we should connect. Whatever it is, the idea is seizing into every conversation a couple of hooks where the other person could connect the dots for us by seeing something in there that might be of interest to them. 
Another way is, of course, to look at uh, mistakes or crisis differently. Um, we talked about the example of Viagra, that once we see something in the moment, we can do something with it. There's also really cool practices. Um, if we have time later, I'd love to talk about one, which is the Project Funeral, which is one of my absolute favorites, which is all about saying, how do we essentially, if an idea in an organization doesn't work out, how do we then make sure that we still figure out how we can use that or reuse that in some other way, rather than just hiding it away? Um, we can also reframe situations. Um, this is a fascinating one where a lot of our work has been in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and there's this organization, Reconstructed Living Labs, our labs. And essentially, they come out of a very impoverished community. And one of the things that they do differently is that they are going into a new context, into a new community. And instead of asking something like, what do you need, right, which, which essentially is, is a budget approach, which is the approach of asking for resources, they say, what is already here, and how can we make the best out of it? And by doing this, essentially, what they, what they achieve is that everyone first thinks about, oh, there's an old garage, fantastic, that could be a training center. Oh, there's a former drug dealer or a former drug user, that could be a potential teacher, the social capital they have is, is, is wonderful. And so essentially, then all these unexpected solutions emerge because people are not thinking about a particular solution and how to get the money for it, but they're thinking about what is here and how could we come up with a new solution here. And I'll talk more about this later, I think, in relation to some of the questions, if, if, if that comes up, um, how that approach is really at the core of, of a lot of this. Um, there's also a lot around how we can um, enable serendipity spotting, so um, how we can, in meetings and other things, ask people, what surprised you last week? Or um, did you question the assumptions last week or something? Anything that brings up what might have been there before. And then, of course, the question of how, in a COVID world, um, we can leverage technology. Um, that is something, you know, the traditional water cooler moments where you would just bump into a colleague and come up with maybe in constant place a new paper or a new course or so. These water cooler moments, of course, are reduced at the moment, but we can recreate them in a lot of ways. So, for example, companies like Google and others, they have something like uh, random coffee trials where they ask employees, when do you have time? Give us one time slot. And then they randomly pair them up with someone else in the organization, give them an inspiring prompt or so, and then they meet for coffee for an hour and just talk about something. And usually a lot of times that leads to kind of unexpected insights. Last but not least, and this is one of my favorites, is really the idea of developing some kind of North Star, some kind of purpose, or even just a curiosity, because the more, the more we have a sense of direction, the more it allows us to also connect the dots to it and to really do something with it. And so that is really something I found that interesting here in New York with Governor Cuomo, who essentially was really good at saying, I will not just give you an exact plan of, you know, like an exact timeline, um, what I will do is I will give you two principles, which is public health and economic health, and then I will give you an approximate timeline, but I tell you already now that I will adjust this timeline based on unexpected information. What he's doing here is he's giving us a clear North Star, but he's ready for the unexpected, as opposed to all these other governors who are essentially setting up a timetable, then they have to revise the timetable, which either makes them look as if they don't understand the dynamic, or they have to hide the data coming in. And so essentially, by having like not an over-fixed plan, but rather a sense of direction, and then kind of an idea of um, the unexpected emerging, it gives us that, um, and that comes a lot of our research as well. Um, for example, in terms of uh, purpose-driven leaders, um, there's a Leaders on Purpose report we just did with CEOs, where it is exactly this, like they are really good at saying, this is the sense of direction, and now we're open to which strategy unfolds. Now, the philosophy, or the, the, the philosopher in me being the German I am, I have to wrap this up with a philosophical note. Um, which is that, oh, and, and before I do this, of course, I wanna give a big thanks to, to everyone who has been a part of this, this journey. 
um, which is of course Penguin Random House, um, who has been, you know, especially through COVID times, uh, a brilliant support in terms of, you know, on the editing side, on the on the communication side, and so on. So, so thank you so much um, to to Emily, Julia, and the team for for really kind of um, pushing this um, um, forward. Um, also to Curtis Brown, my agent, um, um, uh, there has been fantastic, uh, Gordon, and uh, the NYU Center for Global Affairs, and of course here the Marshall Institute. Um, thank you so much for for your support. I think um, those kind of ideas. Uh, I remember when I started um, a couple of years ago researching into that topic. It was that kind of area where people would say, "Oh, can you actually research this?" And I think having people like you supporting something like this, which hopefully becomes now a serious research stream um, with kind of first uh, top papers and so on, um, is is really something that I'm personally excited about to give legitimacy also to to something that seems to be more scientific than we thought it might it might actually be and to really rigorously embedding that into the debate. Um, and so I'd love everyone to send in stories. If you have interesting stories, please do send them over, please tweet them um, for the next editions and for all the frameworks we're building at the moment, the more stories, the merrier. And also um, I'd love to personally talk about it. Now, wrapping this up philosophically, um, um, I grew up in Heidelberg where Goethe and Schiller wrote a lot of their poems. And Goethe had this beautiful idea that if you take someone as they are, you make them worse, but if you take someone as they could be, you make them capable of becoming who they can be. And that is really the core spirit behind serendipity, that serendipity is about potentiality. It is about what could be. It's not about saying, if you are X, Y, Z, you will always be X, Y, Z, but it's about saying, oh, what could be out there? Could there be something new, something meaningful, something purposeful? And this is really something that, that we've been working a lot on also here in the, in the Marshall Center to really say, let's question all these structures, let's question all these kind of different ideas and assumptions and by doing this, we enable people to become their potential most aligned selves. And, and so that's really what, what this is uh, about in, in a more philosophical sense. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion now. And uh, thank you so much for joining. Great. Thank you, Christian. Um, so I'm going to take the chair's privilege to ask the first question. But while I ask that question, I just wanted to remind those of you who are adding questions to the Q&A, just scroll through what's already in there because you can like someone else's question. If, you, if you're intending to ask something similar to what has already been asked, add a like to it and then it'll move up to the top of the queue. And, that, and then I'll ask that question first. Um, so my question, having read your book, Christian, is in your book, you discuss creating serendipity through strategies such as having an artist mindset, fostering an environment where it's safe to fail or to learn from failure. Now, these are also strategies for nurturing creativity. How is serendipity different from creativity? Yeah, that's a great question because I remember um, back in the days when Steve Jobs, um, he had these beautiful ideas obviously around how creatives always feel guilty because they always see something in the moment and do something with it and, and connect one idea with another. And that kind of then usually leads to something where they didn't work necessarily that much for it, but it, just, it came to them a lot of times. But obviously there's a lot of work behind that, right? And so it's really, um, in a way, there's, there's a lot we can learn from serendipity, uh, sorry, from creativity. Um, and one of the things actually that, that um, if you look at the process of serendipity, um, you know, the creativity part is, is a lot about the connecting dots part, right? It's a lot about how do we essentially like like connect a with b and then come up with something interesting around this and this is thing on it's one of the beauties of the book that in a way like that we can anchor serendipity the process in these different areas in terms of we can learn from creativity around how do you connect dots better and um, we can learn from 
um, physics, how, how energy works and how energy kind of, or even quantum physics in, in that regard, um, we, can, we can learn from other areas. And so I think in, in those respects, like when it comes to creativity, when it comes to bricolage and all these different other aspects, there's pieces we can learn from. Um, and it's almost like this Venn diagram where then we can see, oh, the connecting the dots is similar, but then, you know, the kind of putting, like developing a mindset that can create smart luck is, is a bit different. And so we can, we can play around with that. Mm. So, so serendipity is a little bit like the system that's the overlap of all these different Venn diagrams. It's that system that's created from the interaction of all these different, mm -hmm. uh, like creativity and other skills. And actually extroversion, I mean, do you need to be extroverted in order to create uh, serendipity? Great question, because I mean, as a closet introvert, you know, I'm this kind of um, passionate introvert who have spikes of extroversion. Everyone, you know, who only knows me in a public context would be like, oh my God, you're the most extroverted person out there. But actually then I have to hide in, 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 in my living room for a couple of hours to just kind of get that energy back. And so um, I, I thought about, about this a lot. And, and there's, there's also quite a bit of work around how um, the way extroverts function, or if we look at a, at, a, at a kind of continuum between extroversion and introversion, and you know, the more extrovert we are, um, the more we might have access to people, access to networks, um, we might follow up differently with people, people might react differently to us, right? So that is all good for having more triggers. But then actually when it comes to connecting the dots, um, the more reflective introvert piece actually can be really effective in seeing the value in something and really doing something with it. Um, so what we're seeing a lot is A, that a lot of times extroverts really benefit from kind of having an introvert partner or someone else who helps them reflect and ground some of these things. But also introverts themselves can do a lot about, um, you know, even if you don't want to put, uh, put yourself out there directly, um, you can find indirect ways. And, and a lot of serendipity, of course, doesn't necessarily happen via people. It can happen by looking at a bookshelf and getting an inspiring idea, or it can happen at like reading a newspaper, which happens a lot of times, right? And you come with, up with an idea and so on. So um, th there's as much for introverts as for extroverts, uh, but certainly there's a lot to learn also from how can we take what could be potentially the beneficial things that an extrovert does, like uh, interacting with a lot of people without having to do it. So for example, when I'm at an event, like the first thing I do is I talk with the host and I try to, to tell the host about an exciting idea and try to incentivize them to then talk with other people about that idea so that I don't have to talk about it. And so essentially, and um, what's happening here is that we're seeding this to other people and we almost outsource the extroversion to other people and then they can, they can go ahead with it. And there's a lot of these kind of strategies where we as introverts can actually have other people be extroverted about it. Great, no, thank you. Um, okay, let me get to the audience questions now. And we've got one that's a very popular question. So 18 votes for this one. Um, so environment aside, how much does one's self-confidence factor into this? Do more confident and extrovert people seem to have more luck? So is the issue one of becoming more confident for some people? Yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of work um, around exactly that question. Thank you, by the way, Ben, for, for this wonderful question. Um, and it's really, it's wonderful with the, with the vote ups. And um, thank you everyone for, for engaging with it um, to, to see that. Um, so, so there's a lot of work around exactly that in a way, the, the way we act on opportunities. So even if we see a potential opportunity, we might not act on it, right? Because we all might have a hidden imposter in us or imposter syndrome, or we all might kind of like, you know, have something in there. And I remember this conversation with a wonderful, um, uh, restaurant, uh, uh someone who was running a restaurant in London, who, um, I asked him, so, so how much serendipity do you have in your life? And he would be like, before 25, never, and after, after 25, all the time. 
and and we were trying to explore like what what changed and he was like look i kind of i went through a journey during that time where i promised myself that i am worthy i promised myself that i am worthy of opportunity because he would be the kind of person who would he would work as a waiter and he has such a great energy and he has such a positive attitude that people would always offer him things they would always say hey look someone like you should should work for xyz company that i just set up why don't you join us and he would always say no because he wouldn't trust that he could actually do it and so he he had this kind of lack of self um self-confidence um and 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 so on and you know in his head it was always people like me are not supposed to do xyz people like me are supposed to be in this business in this service industry and it, we're not supposed to do the big things and, and xyz and i've seen that a lot with i think especially people who are growing up in in environments where maybe they didn't get that kind of uh, feeling of self-worth or, or feeling of self-confidence um that they are of course like it, it holds it holds back sometimes um that kind of questioning self-doubt and and so on and there's definitely that's also where um a lot of the, the the kind of work we've been doing around it is around how do we overcome this so how do we set ourselves up psychologically um but also how do we uh, set up an environment for it again if you're a leader how do you like develop psychological safety for people that they feel they can speak up because they feel comfortable speaking up rather than being shot down um and and so in the company context i always find it interesting when you think about what makes a good culture because the good culture of course comes a lot from people feeling that they will not be talked about if something doesn't work out and and so on and so we could talk about this later but i think on the individual level um yes there's there's definitely kind of a lot in there in terms of that feeling of self-worth self-confidence and so on has a huge effect and that we can work on this um but at the same time also that um there are kind of you know concrete things we can do about it that that help us um to to get to that point great thank you um next would you consider the pandemic has brought more opportunity than challenges you know it's interesting so so i had covid in march um like a severe you know i couldn't breathe and it was like a heavy um a heavy period and um it's like in the moment these things of course always feel really tough right and rough and 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 so on um and at the same time i when i think back on my life and when i look at a lot of the research we've been doing when when you trace people over time a lot of their most interesting moments in life and the most serendipitous moments in life a lot of times came out of moments of crisis out of moments of 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 that kind of challenging situation and i think covid was interesting because obviously it's almost like been a collective near death experience right like that everyone from one day to the other we were all put into our small boxes at home um and and without kind of any social connection which obviously is at the core of our of our lived experience to to somehow interact with other people um we were like a lot of things that we took for granted were taken away so in a way there's this void which forced a lot of us to dive deeper into what is meaningful to me what do i really want in life and and so my my deep belief is that this is a period where um we can in a way probably we will look back in 10 years from now and say wow like this was an interesting reassessment period that allowed us to rethink about did i really want to become xyz person or do i just want to you know live xyz life and and i rethink what i'm what's really important to me and you know when you asked that question it reminded me of um there's this wonderful article about deathbed regrets and it's so much about the question of when people are on the deathbed they never say something like i wish i had focused i wish i had stayed two more hours on the job or i wish i had like you know like all these kind of trivial things but they usually say i wish i had built more meaningful relationships with the people i really care about and like things that i think are reinforced at the moment because we're we're trying to figure out what life is really about in those periods and use that as an anchor for whatever comes next and so i think yes i feel like this at the moment 
is both kind of on a more like holistic level an amazing opportunity because we have that kind of space, but also um, a lot of the opportunities that I'm seeing at the moment where, you know, I mentioned the example of the brewery becoming a hand sanitizer company. I see a lot of innovation happening at the moment where out of resource constraints, people develop really interesting creative stuff. And, you know, it reminds me a lot of, um, like a lot of my work in resource constrained environments where out of necessity, that's where the really interesting innovation and the really impactful innovation emerges because you just don't have any other choice. And so it's really interesting, I think, also in terms of innovation and everything else that we're seeing already, but we will also see much more. Um, the really interesting things happening now that actually are not just incremental, let's build a better like ATM machine type things, but let's rethink how we work, let's rethink how we, we go about life. And I think, I think it's a really interesting period um, from a lot of perspectives, environmental and societal and, and so on. And um, so I'm, yeah. I'm very hopeful for it. Well, and if we fit this into your, um, your model, the pandemic is a trigger. And so you could either see the trigger as a challenge and then you miss out on all the opportunities or you could connect the dots and turn it into some kind of serendipity. Exactly. Um, okay, do you view serendipity being pretty much the same as the growth mindset theory, Carol Dweck? Yeah, well, it's interesting because the growth mindset obviously is all about saying, okay, um, how do I constantly kind of see things as learning opportunities and grow from that and, and really you know, do something out of this. And again, it's similar to the creativity aspect that I think there, there's a lot we can learn from that. There's a lot we can learn from, from how we look at the world of this. And then again, I think there's, again, if we look at it as a Venn diagram, we have the growth aspect that is certainly there. And then I think we have the other aspects which are much more around how do we essentially see something in the unexpected? How do we do something with the unexpected? How do we turn that into something? So I think um, there's, there's definitely around this, but highly recommended the, the Growth Mindset book because it's, um, it's certainly been a great inspiration to me in terms of how you think about how to not be in a fixed state of assuming that, you know, I am supposed to be XYZ person. I will always be that person to how, how do I become someone else and how do I believe I can become someone else? And so it's psychologically, um, actually, it's, it's part of the psychological section of the book around how we actually try to understand how we can um, grow and become um, and then make that part of that overall framework. Yeah. So just like creativity, it's growth mindset is one of those ingredients that you need, but it's not the whole thing. Um, okay, as serendipity is difficult to predict and its effect is difficult to measure and organizations love predictability and measurable things, how do you suggest making the business case for serendipity to organizations in a way that they understand it and buy into it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of my work is with companies around executives. And I think one of the things that I've seen work pretty well is um, A, seeing it as a way of people connecting more with the company. So essentially, once we start saying, hey, can everyone tell us the serendipity story in relation to XYZ company, then essentially we're creating beautiful stories. And based on the stories, we're seeing, oh, there's a certain pattern. Um, it seems like 50% of our innovations are coming from these serendipitous things, or it seems like this. So that is the one thing to really kind of understand the patterns behind the stories. There's obviously a huge kind of aspect um, on, on the kind of marketing side and everything else of how beautiful serendipity stories tend to be. And everyone has a serendipity story. So it's a lot of times also beautiful for the company itself to be kind of like, to in a way, humanizing the company in, in that sense. But most importantly, so there's, there's, there's companies uh, that have done very concrete things such as, um, for example, incentivizing that five, uh, five uh, times a week, um, people were incentivized to look out for something unexpected um, in a marketing plan, for example. And so literally they were put into the mindset of, we want you to find something unexpected in there. Tell us what is unexpected in there and go in there. 
And then what you can show is that essentially, let's say you have a put like a washing machine plan, right? That shows you, oh, we're predicting to have these washing machines being sold. And then you see all oh, this, but there's quite a few farmers telling us that it breaks down because of potatoes. Actually, instead of trying to ignore this because it doesn't fit into your marketing plan, you're saying, hey, this will save us a lot of costs later because if we're now just producing these washing machines and we're not producing this, we're missing out on this whole market. We're missing out on X, Y, Z. The same with defects, right? If we see unexpected defective things happening very early on, and we're incentivized to look at it and see it. Essentially, it, it helps us do that more often. So we can do a lot of calculations around, you know, what is the kind of potential revenue coming out of it, but also what is the cost we're saving from this. And so there's a lot of work. If you're interested, please do feel free to reach out. There's a lot of work around um, how especially in companies that helps us a lot, um, both in terms of the innovation side, the cost side, but also the kind of story side and, and the human element of, of getting people excited and getting them um, that comes back to the purpose part, right? Like that at the end of the day, um, if you think about attracting and retaining the most uh, excited talent, what you want to do is you want to relate that somehow to a bigger purpose. And a lot of times that comes from this joy that comes from the potentiality of serendipity and that there could be something in there. So it's basically taking the data you're already collecting and looking at it in a different way. A lot of times, yes. And, and I found that to be the most effective way because it's essentially um, doesn't add any more work or something, right? It's, it's a very yeah. cost-effective way of saying, hey, great, we can actually use this and then do something with it directly. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, do you have a definition of luck? What percentage of life do you think is luck? <laughs> That's a great question. Oh, it reminds me, by the way, um, we also wanted to briefly launch, launch a survey. Um, and so right after, this, after I answer this question, please, if I forget, please, please do remind yeah. me. Um, I'm in this period of my life where I tend to forget a lot of things, but I think it, um, we, we will try to remember that. But it's a great question. And, and if you think about it that way, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to put, put a percentage number on it. It's, it's very idiosyncratic, but um, in terms of, you know, each, each person's life. But what I can do is, so we know from um, research that in management, for example, around 50% of things are unexplained variants. So if you, if you essentially um, write a business plan and everything else, it is relatively likely that you will run into someone the next day who tells you about something completely different and you completely like pivot and adjust to something completely different, which will look as very lucky when you look back. So um, that happens in, in a lot of cases, up to 50% innovations, inventions. Um, and I would just kind of, in a way, encourage looking back on your own life and say, which kind of situations seem lucky. But when I look at it now from this perspective, I had a role in it. Like I didn't just inherit something here passively, but actually, I had a proactive decision that I made in that moment, which then made me end up with my partner or with my co-founder and everything else. And so I think that is really coming back to the differentiation earlier that there's a, a bit of like, like blind luck happening in life that we can't influence. And I think that's the part which, while it just happens and, and you know, there's not that much we can do about it, at least not that I know of, but there's a lot we can do about this smart luck and um, it does happen and, and that's, I think, why it's so important to do something like a serendipity journal or something else that gets us into the mindset of, oh, this is how today I will use a meeting to instill a little bit of serendipity into it. Because essentially what's happening then is you see the shift um, from week one where you don't do that to week two where you have that happening more and more. And so what I thought the first, you know, it was one of those questions where I would love to answer it in 20 different ways. But for the sake of time, I will only use that one, which is really kind of saying, that in a way we can program ourselves to have more of that serendipity. And then we can literally see our own development from week one to week 10, how much more serendipity and luck we have happened because we did small behavioral changes like the way we ask questions, 
um, like how we put ourselves out there and so on. And I think that to me is a really interesting thing that then luck tends to happen much more often than if, if we don't do this. And so one of the things we have in the book is really this kind of um, serendipity score, which, which is all about saying, like, like try to score yourself this week and then check out where you are in five weeks when you go through these practices. And I've always found it fascinating. You know, you do a workshop around this or something. And after a week, people are like, oh my God, like serendipity starts to happen all the time now. And I, I find that fascinating how quickly we can have immediate effects rather than, you know, I used to work on social impact before where the results take you years and years and you only get an email after five years where someone says, thank you, we had this impact now. But with serendipity, it's very immediate. And so I think um, the more you write this down, the more you get yourself into it, the more it starts to happen. And that's, that's the joy and the beauty that, that then comes yeah, from Yeah, which, which by the way, I thought was a great part of the book. At the end of each chapter, there's something called a serendipity workout. And it actually has things you can do um, right away to start building serendipity in your life. Um, I thought that was a really nice touch. Do we want to run the poll now? The, we want to find out Good point. Yes, if you, you think of yourself as lucky or not. So please answer the poll. We would love to know. Very lucky audience, uh, indeed. <laughs> I'd be curious to see if, if this would have changed, if we would have asked you at the beginning and then at the end. Um, next time we'll, we'll do I that. Think so. but, <laughs> but that's <laughs> that's fascinating to, to see. Um, so thank you so much. So we had 85%, uh, I don't know if you've, you've seen that, but 85% of people in the audience consider themselves to be lucky. Now, again, we might have pre-framed you a little bit, so next time we'll do that at the beginning, but um, but that's, that's, that's great to hear. And it's, it's great to, to see, by the way, thank you so much for the questions. I mean, we'll, Maybe we'll find a way, those questions we can't answer now, maybe we find a way to feedback it later or, or, or else. Yeah. Um, so the next popular question is, are you familiar with positive psychology and have you used any of those ideas in your work? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So, so one of the key protagonists in the book, actually, uh, Nico Rosa, um, he is, is one um, of, you know, the kind of Seligman type, um, uh, you know, in, inspired uh, ones. And, and it's interesting because we, um, a, a lot of, you know, if we think about of positive psychology as, as kind of the idea of how do we um, focus on, on strengths and, and behaviors that, that allow us to somehow do something um, and to move towards that, that flourishing, um, it, it's really about, you know, identifying what makes a good life and, and, and do something with it. And so there's definitely a lot around um, this in the book, um, around how we, we try to understand it, a meaningful life, um, how do we try to understand um, what's at the core of this. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think we could, we could definitely also, uh, those of you interested, um, Nico Rose is his name, um, the, the wonderful person in the book who also um, brought in a lot of thoughts around this um, in, in that case. So I highly recommend checking him out as well. Um, but again, it's, it's really coming back to the, to the Venn diagram bit that like there it's really about this kind of reinforcement of, of strengths and so on that, that plays one part and then you have the other pieces that are coming together. So yes, it's a big role. Great. 
Now this one, um, you did say a little bit about this earlier, but maybe say a bit more. Um, with the office, restaurant, and city streets acting as places for these incidental conversations and unexpected encounters, do you think COVID-19 has changed serendipity with reduced in-personal um, socializing and interactions? Or do you think the internet can replace this? Yeah, yeah that's a great point. And, and I think, I mean, initially, um, you know, I mean, I've seen it in my own life and um, people around us, how, how much it cut off, right, in terms of the personal interactions that, that can lead to serendipity. Um, and then, you know, what I think a lot of people have tried to do is try to replicate this as much as possible. So, for example, here in New York, uh, you will see that um, you have uh, dating platforms, for example, where you can go for dinner with eight people. And then you have a group dinner, right, which usually obviously is where you meet someone. And then you have that group dinner and then you can go into breakout rooms if you like each other. And then you kind of continue in the breakout room. And again, these are things that, that are not ideal, right? It's not the kind of same thing. Um, but it's trying to replicate a lot of this. So yes, there was a bit, uh, a, quite a big, big of a cut off, cut off uh, in terms of that's certainly be happening out there. But at the same time, I think there's more and more smart solutions, as I mentioned earlier, also around this kind of random coffee trials within companies that try to recreate water cooler moments. Um, or you know, one of my favorites actually in real life um, that also can be replicated in some way in in, off in online life is. Um, something I've used a lot in, in the work with people who come from less privileged backgrounds, because when you come from less privileged backgrounds, uh, a lot of times you don't have real access to uh, opportunity, to networks and everything else. And so one idea there is to say, go to events at the LSE, at the RSA, at other kind of public um, institutions mm -hmm. and be the first person who asks the question, right? So let's say there's an inspiring speaker, uh, a CEO of something or like a president or whatever, and in real life, you would kind of be the one who like energetically stands up. And here you would be the one who maybe asks five questions in the chat. And one of them will probably get uploaded and you put your name and like maybe one or two context sentences. And what's happening a lot of times then is that the way we would frame it is to say, hey, look, um, thank you so much for this inspiring speech. It was wonderful. Um, so making it all about the speaker and then like having this middle sentence, which says something like as someone who just went through XYZ transition. So whatever we feel comfortable sharing, sometimes they would be something like, I very transparent saying I just came out of prison and I, I'm looking for XYZ or whatever it is. Do you have some advice what someone in my situation can do? And so what we're doing here is we're making it about the speaker. We're making it about a broader question that is about someone like me, but we insert this middle sentence that has all that potentiality in that. And usually what always happens both offline and now online, I've seen it happen as well, is that essentially there's always four or five people in the audience who would say, oh my God, such a coincidence, my brother recently went through a similar period, I wanna put you in touch, or oh my God, such a coincidence, my sister might have a job for you. Whatever it is, like there's always some kind of like coincidental thing because you put some dots out there and that we can do online as well, not in the same way and, and, and a bit more restricted, but I think um, online, the beauty of course is that everything is a bit more scalable, a bit more kind of, you know, you can do a lot of more things out there. Um, for example, also, you know, sending serendipity bombs, like in the way of, of saying, uh, LinkedIn, for example, has this email function where you can reach a lot of second degrees, so, or essentially all second degrees. So if, if I know content, I can now write a message to all of her contacts where I can be like, hey, I've been so inspired by your work and um, I just was wondering about XYZ, whatever it is, just something that's not pitching, but it's about putting oneself on the radar of other people. And I think at times like these, this is wonderful because everyone's at home, right? Everyone's online. So even these heavy hitters who usually might not be that available online are actually available online now. And so uh, it's a huge opportunity to see the couple of things, especially if we're looking for jobs, for example, putting on the radar now 
where in six months from now someone might be like, oh my God, yeah, I came across this person half a year ago and now I remember I need XYZ and, and putting that together. So I think online can be a great opportunity if we, if we feed some of these serendipity bombs and really um, make mm. use of this because it has that scale. Yeah, and online is very different. I mean, this online Q&A is a, a much more democratic process than people <laughs> raising their hands. Um, so here we've got a question that got seven votes. It says, my name is Emerson Sutton and I am 13 years old. To date, I've been very successful with my opportunities. How do I ensure that this continues with even more competitors? Well, first of all, Emerson, I mean, congratulations. That sounds wonderful that you're already kind of in that mindset and, and going out there and, and changing the world. So, so please do continue to admit that's wonderful. Uh, and, and thank you, Elaine, for, for, for posting it. Um, I, I think it's interesting because um, you know, one thing, one thing um, that, that a lot of our work has also shown, um, I think if we look at the world in terms of competition, one thing that might be dangerous is that then, yes, we see that there's more and more people who might compete with us versus if we look at it in terms of, hey, all these people could become potential allies if I position myself for a particular area or for a particular field or theme or so. If you feel there's some kind of passion that's in you or something that, that is there, yes, there will always be some kind of competition. But at the end of the day, the, I think the older you will grow and the, the more you will do in the world, the more also there might be kind of themes where essentially you can do your own thing and then other people will, will not be competitors, but they will be your collaborators who are really kind of with you uh, on, on this journey. And I think um, in, in a way you seem to have that mindset already, I would probably say, you know, um, and, and doing something like a journal that helps you to think about what was it about these opportunities that you got that like worked well. So why did you get these? What was it about what you did that really helped you do it? How can you build on this? But also where there situations where it didn't work and, and what was it about them? What could you do differently? And once you start writing this down, I think it will help you to build on this and to really kind of iterate on this. And then if you combine this with some of the things we talked about today and, and really kind of keep that open mind, I'm pretty sure, you know, you will continue being out there in the world, having a lot of opportunities and uh, kudos for, for doing this. And it's, it's wonderful. Um, that, that, you're, that you're with us here uh, today. So thank you for, for joining us also. Yeah, and I think, Christian, what you said about um, competitors are not always competitors. There's this concept of co-opetition where competitors can sometimes be people you help each other. Um, okay, in an age when many of us are building wonky careers and living multi-dimensional lives, what do you suggest as the most effective hook selection process? With so many more hooks in our pockets, how do we know which hooks to hook or seeds to plant in conversations? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I think it also comes to the question of filters, right? In a way, I think a lot of us who have a lot of serendipity happening, one key challenge is how do you filter opportunities? How do you filter? How do you make sense that you don't just get distracted, right? If you have three portfolio elements in your thing, if you're freelancing and software and you're at the same time um, 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 working on a book and at the same time you're doing a third thing, um, then of course there's the risk of getting distracted very easily. And, and, and so what I found very um, interesting as a filter is A, the North Star we talked about. So really kind of understanding what is my key priority at this point where I want to head towards and how does everything fit into this? And if it doesn't fit into this, maybe it's not for me at this point. So Paul Pullman, um, the former CEO of, of Unilever, he's been really good at this. Like he would essentially, he always works on a lot of projects, but he's, so he seems to people outside that he's distracted but actually it's extremely focused. Like he has this clear idea of where I want to go is I want to have a platform that allows me to help people who can't help themselves. Like that's just kind of like broader theme and North star. And 
if things fit into that, then he will place that into the different projects. If not, he will just say no. And so I think like learning or, or finding a way that helps to say, there's an umbrella for all these projects and the umbrella might be um, X, Y, Z, whatever that umbrella is in, in that case. And, and, and only things that fit into that umbrella are the general hooks. And then for the specific hooks, um, it's really the prioritization then, right? So for example, I, I just went through this process when writing the book that, you know, I'm always excited about serendipity in terms of so many different areas, but when writing the book, it was clear that has to be the priority. And I actually had to close down to serendipity a lot. And I was only looking for serendipity that actually would be about how can more people learn about the book? How can I make sure that that mindset gets into every school, every high school, every university, and like really focusing on serendipity around this and people around me knew that then. So they would only come to me with, with, with potential dots connected that relate to this. And so I think um, in a way, having that North star, having that kind of priority of like, okay, of these like portfolio elements, these two or three are the key ones at the moment. And then really letting people know about it. I think that's the key because we always assume we have to connect the dots ourselves, but actually most of the time other people connect them for us, especially when it comes to jobs. And then people might be like, oh, you've been really good at this. Your vision is this, your purpose is this, this could really fit into this or whatever it is. And so I think there's a lot in this idea of, of having clarity about this. And again, I would, I would probably, it's almost like if you would um, like do a half pager about like what would be your, I mean, not necessarily TED story or TED talk, but like what would be your kind of, this is what I stand for. This is kind of the, the core pillars, the core principles, and this is how the project fit into this. And now this is the core project and then feeding the hooks related to that project. And I think being honest, like I don't think there's a golden bullet in terms of, I think it's a lot around experimentation. So for example, um, I, in whichever context I'm, I'm in, I'm always reframing a lot around how I do my introduction. Like, do I do it a bit more about the academic stuff? Do I do it more about the book? Do I do it more about serendipity, more about purpose? And so in a way playing a little bit, also seeing what resonates with people, what, what really leads to this. I feel it's, it's this journey of experimentation um, that comes from us having a, a first kind of idea of like a potential storyline and then essentially rubber stamping this and, and seeing how it flies and what works, what doesn't. Um, but most importantly, I think um, like having that prioritization I feel is, is absolute core because otherwise serendipity does distract potentially. Mm. So um, we have to get this question in. So. Um, this person says, thanks for the talk, very interesting. What is your number one tip for creating good luck? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, as someone who, um, um, you know, loves, um, you know, having five or 10 things on my mind, um, it, it's a great one. My absolute favorite is definitely how to use every conversation for serendipity to be injected. So to have every conversation when someone speaks, I'm always thinking about, how does this relate to what I'm working on, what my friends are working on? And so I'm constantly thinking about connecting dots. I'm constantly, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm resonating with it. But at the same time, I'm also trying to say, oh great, this is how I could put you in touch with this person. This is how I could do this. And so this allows them um, to have a lot of serendipity happen because you, know, you, you, you start identifying overlaps everywhere and um, get away from, from kind of box mindset um, type approaches. So I think I've also seen that with my students, like once, um, once we got them into introducing themselves and then building on what another person said and building on it in a way of, oh, this is how it relates to my thing. We get used to saying, oh, I thought a software engineer would be so different from a political scientist. But you know what? Coincidentally, we both just went through a transition that was all about how we can find our identity. And so we find these common denominators, but we don't find them if we don't constantly think about, okay, 
how do we ask more open questions, but also how do we constantly try to understand what is behind the things you're telling me and how can I do something with it? And so one of my favorites in that regard is really, um, apart from kind of trying to always think about how to connect things with each other, is also this idea of asking why a lot uh, and in a non-obtrusive way, uh, non-intrusive way, um, so to understand what is the real intention and the real motivation, the real interest, um, because obviously, you know, a lot of times we might say something, but there's much more behind it. We, you know, if, if you go to a doctor and you say, I have a, head, uh, I have a headache, yeah, that's what you can articulate at this point because that's what the symptom that shows. But the doctor will always ask you what's behind that. Like, oh, maybe, you know, you might have cancer and the headache is just a symptom of that cancer and whatever it is. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if that's, that's a symptom of it. But the point being that a lot of times trying to understand what is the real intention behind it and asking why quite a bit is actually a really effective way that companies like Toyota, for example, the founder of Toyota, <coughs> he had this five why strategy where he would always, for every problem that, that would come up, he would always ask why five times to really get to the root cause of it, the root problem, rather than staying with the symptom. And I think I found that super effective doing that in a very non-intrusive way to really dive deeper into what is the real problem here. Is, is infidelity, when a friend tells me about cheating, is, is that really about the, the problem that, that, that someone was just attracted by someone, or is it because there was a real fundamental flaw in the relationship and that has to be worked on or whatever it is. And so I think there's, there's, there's a lot in that once we, um, try to understand what's behind what someone tells us and how could that connect to different things. So since we're running low on time, I'm going to pick on this question because it's a little bit different. Um, this is from an LSE alumna in Beirut. How would you link serendipity to a whole nation affected by an event simultaneously? I was reading your book after the explosion in Beirut on August 4th and it really widened my perspective. Yeah, thank you so much for the, the great question. And I'm really sorry about this, this situation. I mean, it's obviously um, been, been, been shocking for all of us seeing that, that happening. And um, it, it's really something, one of the things that on a kind of systemic level, I'm excited about when, when talking about this, this content and, and, and trying to embed it is really to say, ideally we're setting up our systems and processes on the policy level, on the company level, uh, on the organizational level in ways that are ready for these unexpected um, um, happenings to happen so that we know that these things this, 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 I think this incident in itself is, is obviously extremely unique. Um, and then at the same time, you know, a lot of our research, for example, with, with large companies shows that the most important decisions these leaders made were if you take a Turk cell in Turkey, it was when a hurricane or a tornado happened or for Best Buy um, when um, there was a hurricane in Puerto Rico. Like these are the moments of crisis where the system has to be really good at saying, yes, we are not we didn't plan that, but we're set up for this because we know that the unexpected happens all the time. And I think this is something that, that um, when I work like with policymakers and, and with people like in education, other parts, it's really about saying, we have to instill into our systems that kind of not only anti-fragility, so not only the idea that we have to be resilient enough to do something with it, but also we have to be ready to know that these things will happen and that we are essentially having um, people who, who can do something with it um, and, and so I think I'd love to talk, talk, talk about this um, in, in more detail also in, in relation to Lebanon and, and, and other parts just because I feel very strongly about this idea that a lot of our systems are not set up that way. We, we tell ourselves we can set them up in a very clear controlled way, but even the most controlled systems, like the unexpected usually shapes them a lot. And as, COVID, as, as Constance said, COVID shifted everything in every country around the world. And these things like, they, they are always unexpected, but to some people they are not. And so how do we get better at, at, at understanding this and, and, and doing something about it? So 
um, there's there's huge application um, in in that case as well. I'm always looking at it as like kind of how do you see something as a dynamic um, thing rather than just the aesthetic thing that that's out there. So, Christian, we only have two more minutes, but I really want to get this question in. So, can you answer this in one minute? Um, I can't make promises, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try. There is an argument made that the rise in extreme inequality has to do with the tyranny of merit, that one deserves one's success, that success is due to one's own doing. How do you frame the serendipity mindset with this idea of the dark side of meritocracy? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's also it reminds me a lot on this idea that you can never blame someone for bad luck, right? You can never blame someone either way you start out, right? If you start out with an extremely low serendipity base level because you grew up in Kibera or because something happened, you know, I think every one of us had experiences in our life where we lost dear ones, where we, where we had situations, they're just bad luck, they're there and, and that's happened. And then on the, on, the, on the side of, you know, if the serendipity mindset is all about saying, I myself can do something to essentially create that myself and for others, that is a lot about saying we can work hard to make that happen. And at the same time, I think it allows us to ask a lot of questions around what we understand as meritocracy so far, right? Is it just about hard work um, that is about achieving exquisite metrics or are there, and, and that's what I love about uh, serendipity and serendipity mindset in general, are we humanizing everything where we say at the end of the day, this is about potentiality of humans. This is about saying someone in a company who's connecting dots all the time for others should be remunerated for this. It shouldn't just be the guy or the girl who's going out and sells a lot of stuff. It should be the person who actually creates purpose and meaning through serendipity for a lot of other people. And so I think meritocracy in a way, um, to me mostly is a problem if we have the wrong success sectors and then like have people rise the ranks based on kind of the wrong success sectors or not rise the ranks and everything else versus once we rethink that and say, at the end of the day, um, if we have a more fluid system that allows to, to essentially integrate um, the idea that a lot of times the people behind the scenes are the ones who actually, and I think Constant, um, by the way, just, just also to mention that Constant has a wonderful book come out uh, next year uh, around a lot of uh, themes that, that we talked about. And I think Constant, one of the things we've obviously been talking about is how do you um, um, develop organizations that are inclusive enough um, that actually it's not only about uh, those elements that usually white old people were good at, right? And then they got incentivized to do it and then it's a reinforcing thing to saying, no, no, what are the real criteria and the real metrics that we should use, but also at the same time saying we have to take into account um, that the world is not simple and that we cannot know a lot of times where exactly we're going. And if we pretend through the way we measure things, through the way we approach success and so on, that we can, it's just untruthful. And so I think um, just to wrap this point up, to me, that is at the core of it, to really say, at the end of the day, we need to get, get rid of this idea that we can um, understand exactly everything and, and really um, be more inclusive in that regard as well. And I also think, I mean, to come back to Christian's own um, biography or his, his own life is that we, if we use our serendipity to create opportunity for others, if we are lucky enough to be lucky, then let's focus on creating social impact and more equality and more, you know, that's what we can do with our serendipity. Yeah. Um, and that's maybe as a very last thought, and I know Constantine, you want to wrap up. Um, I, I, I see that the clock's ticking. Um, um, and, and, but that's exactly also, I think, why, why I'm so delighted to be here with, with Stefan, with, with Amelia and the Marshall Center and, and Constantine, you, because I feel like it's exactly about developing these opportunity spaces where you're saying it's not only about having a couple of people who know what success can be because they've been trained in being successful in traditional structures, 
to saying, no, 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 how do we rethink structures in a way that make it more porous and more fluid in, in ways that we can build these kind of um, broader structures. And so I think that's also something where we would love to work with, with a lot of you. If you have ideas around how to do that effectively and at scale, I think that's the key thing always to say, how do we uh, have, have structural change happen at scale that questions some of these institutional structures around how we measure success, around how we think about success, who should go up, who should go down. And, and to me, the serendipity mindset is at the core of it because, again, if we don't incentivize people, if we don't remunerate people for being that way that we just talked about, we will not have it happen as much because we're shutting that down. And so I think there's a lot of potentiality in that. Great. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for all of your questions. I'm really sorry.